Have you heard? 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 Welcome back to another episode of Have You Heard? I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And today we're going to be talking about for-profit higher ed. I'm calling this episode, When Things Don't Go According to Plan. Well, I think that depends on who you ask, because in some areas it seems like things are going very much according to plan. In that fact, would be the boardroom. That's correct. On my way over here, I happened to read, I was you know, checking my stock performance as usual, and that's I good. happened I, to I see- I hope you bought the whole index. Either that or I hope you bought just stock in, uh, in for-profit Colleges and universities, well, because if, you'd be if, doing well. Exactly. If you have, if you happen to be an investor in for-profit uh, universities, you are going like gangbusters right now. Um, some of the big ones are up like 25, 30%. And um, sort of reassuringly to investors, um, I saw a line somewhere that this administration is not expected to go after for-profit universities the way that the Obama administration did. Well, that's what happens when the founder of a for-profit university is suddenly elevated to commander-in-chief. We have a special guest that we're going to have on in just a few minutes. We have uh, Tressie McMillan-Cottom coming on. She's the author of a fantastic new book called Lower Ed that chronicles the troubling rise of for-profit higher education. But Jack, as our expert on all matters historical and higher educational, I wondered if you could just bring us up to speed on where all this comes from. You want me to go into the time machine? Please. Do we have a sound effect yet? We're, we're almost there. I'm working on it. Okay. All right. Uh, so historically, uh, we have seen uh, more and more Americans attending and graduating from college uh, basically each decade over the 20th century. And eventually, what we started to see was uh, a, a level of saturation at uh, public and private colleges and universities that created a market opportunity uh, that was seized upon by for-profit providers uh, who wanted to cater to a market of students that either was unable to access traditional higher education uh, because of reasons of uh, schedule or geography, um, so one example here would be the University of Phoenix sold a lot of degrees to uh, members of the armed services because uh, members of the armed services need to have a bachelor's degree in order to become officers. Uh, so this is pure credentialism. Uh, and then uh, another example would be uh, catering to students who do not possess the qualifications to have earned a spot uh, in traditional colleges and universities. And uh, these are students who uh, e either did not earn a spot because uh, they didn't possess enough information uh, to, to get the spot that otherwise might have been theirs, um, or didn't have uh, the, the credentials and background that would have gotten them a spot at a more reputable college or university. And so these are students who, unlike uh, members of the armed services, who uh, in many cases knew exactly what they were getting uh, when they paid for a credential, um, these are folks who are who really have been exploited, and so what we see is a graduation rate, a six-year graduation rate. We often look at a six-year rate rather than a four-year rate because things happen. Um, six-year rates at for-profit schools are roughly a third of what the six-year graduation rate is at public and private nonprofit 
uh, colleges and universities. Uh, this is what got them into trouble. Uh, the fact that they were graduating very few of their students and returning quite a bit of value to their shareholders uh, by uh, by helping students rack up a tremendous amount of debt. Uh, so according to one report, about a quarter of uh, the graduates of for-profit colleges and universities were graduating with over $40,000 in debt. And this is actually uh, contrary to what one might believe given the sticker price of colleges and universities. Um, most students do not graduate with that much in debt because, of course, if they can't afford to pay uh, room and board at a college or university. They're often covered through grants, um, financial aid from the institution itself, uh, and then through subsidized loans. And so eventually the federal, go federal government stepped in uh, around for-profit uh, colleges and universities, um, and we're seeing them now step out. We are seeing them step out. I can't say enough good things about um, uh, Tressie McMillan Cottom's new book called Lower Ed. I, it's one of those books where, um, even though it's ostensibly just about uh, about private, about for profit higher education, it has so it's relevant to such a broader um, sphere these days. It's really about the shifting of risk. We think about you know we're so familiar with how risk has moved on to ordinary people as far as retirement and healthcare. Right? It's up to you uh, to. Um, Take your little nest egg and and go and figure out how you're going to live when you can't work anymore. How you're going to pay for healthcare, but increasingly that's the that's the law of the land in education too. And we're going to be talking about it in terms of higher ed, but it's also you know more and more when you hear people talking about school choice and vouchers and taking their education savings accounts and the dollars following the child it's about shifting risk away from an institution away from a system onto the individual and you just chronicled for us how how in relatively short order that that way of thinking has really gone badly for a whole uh, a whole sector of the population yeah, it's interesting to hear you say that. Uh, there's often an argument that is made by uh, free market evangelists in education that the consumer knows best. Uh, and of course, sometimes that's true, but but often it isn't true, and particularly so in higher education, where uh, often people don't understand that a degree is not a degree is not a degree, um, right? So, for instance, uh, when you talk with people about you know what they think a college degree is good for, um, you know, they're often not aware of the fact that a college degree is an indicator to employers of hard skills as well as an indicator of soft skills. But of course, the school you went to shapes the degree to which your diploma actually indicates something. And so what we see, for instance, is that investment banks recruit almost exclusively at uh, Ivy League campuses, not because they think that those students necessarily possess the hard skills, but because they possess the soft skills, including being a good cultural fit uh, for their corporate offices. The old cultural fit. The cultural fit, which is, uh, which is something that they sometimes get sued for. Well, as is so often the case, I feel as though you and I could just sit here for hours just chattering away. That would make a good podcast, that, I think. That one, once again, we turn out to be possessed of just immense expertise about the particular topic. <laughs> but since we actually have an expert coming on to talk, should we summon her forth? That sounds good. All right, we'll be right back.
We are back and we've got with us on the line, Tressie McMillan Cottom, the author of a new book called Lower Ed, The Troubling Rise of For-Profit Colleges in the New Economy. And Tressie, I just want to say that I am perhaps your biggest fan. I've been encouraging anyone I meet to read your book and it's threatening to exhaust my store of adjectives. Jack and I were talking before the break about the whole concept of risk that that seems to underpin your argument. And I want to get you to just jump right in and start talking about risky credentialing and and where this idea comes from and, and what you think it means for people who are now being riskily credentialed. You know, so I have one major problem. I had several problems, but I think I had really one major problem in doing this research, doing this work, and writing this book. And that's that is, people may have felt some empathy um, for people who enrolled in for-profit colleges and maybe had a negative experience, but they did not in any way feel like that was their problem, right? And so I had this challenge of getting people to try to understand why the expansion of for-profit colleges was really this collective social problem. Um, And the idea of risky credentialing, actually, I borrowed the the framework of risky, um, social programs uh, from Jacob Hacker, who had argued that, you know, one of the conditions of working in the new economy is that workers were increasingly responsible for things that employers used to be responsible for. So in his book, he talks about how uh, the, the shift from pensions to 401ks, for example, uh, for uh, company-sponsored health care to HMOs and health care savings accounts. Um, and he calls it risky health care and risky retirement. And I said, well, this is all part of the same theme of shifting the responsibility for training um, the labor force from the employer to the worker. And I said, this sort of credentialing, how insecure that makes people feel, um, that motivates them to take on uh, high-risk, low-prestige, high-cost credentials is part of that sort of overarching shift. Well, well, what comes out so clearly in in the book is that it's not just that the shift has taken place, it's that the process of credentialing never really stops, right? That the um, right. we're right. every day we read about another another kind of job mm-hmm. that's about to be eliminated by a robot. Right. And so mm-hmm. it's now the onus is on on us to be constantly mm-hmm. anticipating changes in the right. in the in what's going to happen as far as demands mm-hmm. um, of the mm-hmm. economy and retraining. And that when you think about how far back this goes now, you're supposed to be thinking about this. Um, if you've got a kid in in elementary school, you're supposed to be right. anticipating like what kind yep. of job should she be preparing for now, right. and then you know cre- how you know start her credentialing early, and then just it's constant. Which of course creates a, a tremendous right. market opportunity, and particularly if you are willing to do things that uh, nonprofit, public K twelve schools, and public universities, and for the most part, nonprofit private colleges and universities have been unwilling to do, promises they have been unwilling to make that we have seen for-profit providers happily make over the years, Mm -hmm. Uh, whether it be something as trivial as cliff notes and the promises associated with what you'll be able to learn from their little Mm for-profit scheme, uh, all the way up through for-profit higher education and the promises about jobs Mm -hmm. that they make. Uh, that their their more ethical counterparts are simply not willing to make, and the kinds of incentives mm-hmm. around this that the market uh, is really cultivating. Absolutely, it is 
easy to promise that education will solve all of your problems when you are not uh, held socially responsible for it, for education not solving all your problems. So the, the real thing, I get this question a lot about, well, you know, why don't community colleges do X? And it seems like the real problem traditional higher education. And I will point out all day long that, you know, there are no innocent parties in the expansion of market-based um, education. But I do suggest to people that one of the one of the reasons that we're not able to be as quote unquote nimble or responsive to some labor market trends and some social inequality trends is precisely because we have an ethical commitment to what we will and will not allow students to do. Uh, and that's actually not something that we should be quick to dissolve for the sake of being uh, more efficient in identifying people's talent so that we can sell them things. Tressie, I've got a question to follow up because you mentioned uh, traditional uh, colleges and universities, and I'm thinking about community colleges, uh, which you mentioned there. And one of the arguments that you do here is that the graduation rates at many for-profit colleges and universities are higher than the graduation rates at community colleges. And I know how I would mm-hmm. respond to that, um, and I know the plan that I would propose in terms of uh, improving uh, two-year Public uh, and nonprofit private colleges, uh, but I'm wondering how you would respond to that. Where, what do you think uh, the the cause of the uh, the current failure of the community college system is, um, and and what do you think the the solution to that problem is? Uh, well, I think the first thing is that there there isn't a problem, right? There there are multiple problems. Um, but first, I would probably start with the uh, with the context of the challenge which is that uh, for-profit colleges do a better job of graduating students who are very similar in, um, you know, important demographics as those who attend or as those who attend uh, community colleges. That is true, depending on how you look at the statistic. Now, the statistic does not account for the fact that a significantly higher proportion of those who attend for-profit colleges will drop out. Mm-hmm. So they do a better job of graduating those who persist, which is a... You know, it's a bit of a complicated win, right? It's kind of like the argument that people make about charter schools, you know, who do a better job of graduation, but then you'll see something like a 50% um, dropout rate between the first year uh, as opposed to the fourth year. Right, and cream. Four-profit colleges have a sort of similar setup. Mm -hmm. Having said that, uh, community colleges um, have a few challenges uh, to doing what for-profit colleges do exceedingly well. Um, especially for uh, students who have some sort of conditions related to poverty. Um, it is almost impossible to get over how important it was to the students I talked to in the course of this book that when they called a for-profit college, a person answered the phone. And that's a really weird thing when I say this to like middle-class audiences. I, I, it's, um, it's hard for me to communicate to them how much that means to people. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's essentially an example of how flattening the bureaucracy, limiting how much bureaucracy students encounter from their first point of contact with the college means to how well they'll do with getting admitted, enrolled, and persisting through graduation. Now, that's not new. We know that students respond well to that sort of uh, what we used to call intrusive counseling, which is basically having somebody kind of hold your hand through the process. But again, what community colleges, the problem they face is how, how reliant they are on public subsidies um, to offer what is essentially a labor-intensive process. 
But it is true that there, I think there are certain things that they could do at the front line um, that could eliminate some of that bureaucracy. The other thing is that we are going to have to reckon with the fact that for a lot of the students that I talk to who attend their for-profit colleges, one of their main reasons for doing so is that they could do so quickly. And now the, the issue of time is one that is not just about personal preference. The time issue is about, again, how economically insecure people are. They need or want the credential quickly so that they can try to get the benefit from the credential quickly, meaning get a job, a new job, the promotion, et cetera. And, you know, when you're still tied to the, um, the semester or quarter credit system, as public higher education is, we're just never going to be able to compete on the grounds of getting students through quickly. Uh, and those are two of some of sort of the biggest, each of those in their own way related to investment, um, but also just about what we think college should look like. We're talking to Tressie McMillan-Cottom about her fantastic new book, Lower Ed. And uh, um, Jack is bouncing up and down. He has uh, he has a follow up question. I I, I promise okay. I promised him he could ask it. And then jumping up and down, but okay. And and then we wanna we wanna hear a little bit more about your experience because that's so key to to the book and how you approach this whole question. Sure. I I just wanted to follow up and say you know it's really interesting to hear you identify a piece that actually is effective in terms of uh, the the usefulness of the market right so that the market mm-hmm. the market does figure out what works for individuals it can figure out that, their preferences and it does promote uh, experimentation with different kinds of practices. Mm-hmm. Well, I think uh, we can just end the show there right then because the, the market the works. The market works. Uh, but of course, you know, then of course there's this other piece, which is that an education is not the same as a box of cereal. Uh, and so there are very right. clear limits to uh, right. what, what personal preference is able to help dictate in terms of effective mm-hmm. practices. Yes. I think that we have gone too far, um, you know, just sort of writ large for ideas of academic capitalism or this um, borrowing um, the market ideologies and the logic of the market into higher education. There are, there, I'm with you on this one. I'm, I don't wholesale reject the idea. Um, but as I tell people, personal preference also gives us things like cheese whiz. But that doesn't mean that we think that cheese whiz is something that should be publicly subsidized and routinely distributed to all people, right? There is this balance between what the institution is supposed to do, which is to sort of protect um, some of the core functions of education from the ravages of the market, quite frankly, Um, but to extract from it, like you said, what it can do well. And there are certain things that we can do well is sort of the um, efficiency of helping people, then absolutely but you can't forget what the um, what the desired effect is. We we have unfortunately adopted the fetish for being efficient without remembering that the efficiency was not the goal in and of itself, right? It is supposed to be um, a mechanism for um, a better educational experience, and that's where I think we get a little tripped up. One of the things that makes your book so powerful is the extent to which you draw on your own experience as a recruiter for both a beauty college and some a place that you call just refer to as the technical college, and um, now uh, now you're a sociologist um, at Virginia Commonwealth, and um, mm-hmm. you use a metaphor that I thought was so powerful. You contrast the role that you play today versus the one that you played as a recruiter as the difference between a priest and a televangelist, mm-hmm. and that as a priest, mm-hmm. your job is to instill in your charges a, a faith in the institution, mm-hmm. 
Whereas in your former role, it was to flog for a brand. And what what I haven't been able to stop thinking about is the extent to which we've suddenly ended up with a situation where the televangelists are in charge of virtually everything from our Department of Education to um, the gentleman who's going to be overseeing some kind of a mysterious panel determining the future of higher ed, who is an actual televangelist. And um, I just wanted to hear you talk a little bit more about that. Sure. Thank you for that. I got to say, I like to, I would like to be able to tell you that I absolutely foresaw all of this happening and I chose the metaphor because I had anticipated Jerry Falwell Jr., but that is not the case at all. Um, uh, but maybe in my later telling of the story many years out from now, that might be how I tell it. Uh, so yes, the idea that, um, there is a, one of the things that sort of tripped us up, I thought, in talking about for-profit colleges and what it was doing to the, social fabric was that everything that they do, the activities they do in and of themselves didn't seem like a bad thing, right? So this is what would happen. Um, uh, I would go out and I would talk to people at for-profit colleges and they would say, so what's so bad about the fact that we help students, you know, that we call them a lot, for example, or that we advertise to them or that we hold their hand through the financial aid process. And when you think of it that way, you think, yes, it is absolutely ridiculous to think of those things as negative things, that they are helping people. But this is where my experience sort of came into play and was very useful in my academic approach to this question. Because it is so difficult for us to gain access to for-profit colleges as researchers, there was a lot about the process we didn't know about. And without having worked in them previously, some of the questions that I knew how to, that I knew to ask, I probably would not have known how to ask. So, as you point out, I had worked in enrollment slash admissions um, in two for-profit colleges before I went to graduate school and uh, got my PhD in sociology. And so, I knew that there was a disconnect between what the institutions uh, said was their formal, you know, their formal um, way of doing business and how people on the ground actually did business. I knew that there was a gap between those two. Um, I also had learned that the students that I had talked to over the years working in for-profit colleges did not sound like the ones that people were reporting on in the news. They were not just, you know, mindless prey they were not stupid. They were not people just making bad decisions because they were, quote, unquote, low-information consumers. But at the same time, I also knew that they were not particularly savvy. They weren't at the vanguard of, like, innovative higher education, which is what for-profit colleges tell you they are. That the reality was actually somewhere in the middle and was, in fact, way more complicated. So based on my experiences working in the sector, when it came time for me to do this research, I knew one I knew one thing, which was that I needed to focus on the most important part of the process at a for-profit college. You have to focus on how they enroll students because that is how they orient the way they run the entire institution, right? When you when 90% of your profit comes from federal student aid dollars and you only enroll students and you and the only source of profit is tuition revenue. How you enroll students is the number one uh, uh, reason that the institution exists. So I need to pay very close attention to how the enrollment process worked. And I also need to talk to students about how they made sense of that process. Uh, and I think that's why I, I asked some slightly different questions than the ones people had asked for before and hopefully got some slightly different answers. 
You know, it's it's interesting hearing you talk through the percentage of dollars that are coming into for-profit mm-hmm. colleges uh, from mm-hmm. federal financial aid, mm-hmm. uh, because of course that actually is evidence of a market imperfection, right? Because the, right. the free market supporters would argue that you know people are mm-hmm. voting with their dollars, but of course they're not voting with mm-hmm. their own dollars. Um, that's right. They're, they're, they're voting with my with my dollars. And that's your, right, and, and, your and that's right. So we removed actually the disincentive. So the other thing that my son is interested, I've talked to like policy people who will say, well, the, the whole point we have this rule called the ninety ten rule, right? That said that for profit colleges could only generate up to ninety percent of their profit from the federal student aid system, and that ten percent had to come from somewhere else. And this is the ten percent was what was supposed to be the market voting on the quality of the for-profit college system, right? That if people attended without using federal student aid, for example, that that was an indicator that the institution was providing something that the market desired. Mm -hmm. Well, in fact, what we see happening is that, you know, where most for-profit colleges get that other 10%, they get it from veterans' uh, GI Bill benefits, which under the definition of 9010 didn't qualify for the 90%. Right. But it is still government. It's still government subsidies. It's not coming from the individual. Right, and it's so, and it's further evidence of people not. A system that has no market intervention. Right, right. I was just going to add that it's further evidence of people not being particularly uh, vociferous in their voting with their dollars. Since we were talking before we jumped on the phone with you about the fact that many veterans know they uh, excuse me, not veterans, but current service members know that they simply need to get a credential, and so once they become right. veterans, there is a kind of mindset that might carry over about just credentialing and moving through systems, right. which which once more. Uh, you know, speaks to the degree to which people are savvily navigating through systems, and they may be quite savvy uh, in some ways, knowing, "Hey, I just need mm-hmm. a credential to become an officer," but then are not necessarily savvy in terms of thinking through what a credential is going to get them. Uh, you know, from a, an employer mm-hmm. out in the in the private sphere. We're talking to Tressie yeah. McMillan Cottom about her new book, Lower Ed, which is fantastic, and you should read. Tressie, you seem prescient about all sorts of things, and and like you have a, a keen grasp of of inequality and where these what the larger forces are that are shaping all of this. Your the research that you did was in Atlanta, and it was interesting the mm-hmm. extent to which. Uh, people really drew a distinction between the historically black colleges and the mm-hmm. for-profit mm-hmm. colleges. I wondered if you were right. paying attention um, uh, in the recent, all the recent headlines about Betsy DeVos's mm-hmm. comments um, about mm-hmm. uh, historically black, black colleges as being pioneers um, of choice. Pioneers of choice, and just, and how you <laughs> yeah. read, how you read that. <laughs> Well, I read it, unfortunately, while being sober. So that was the first problem. <laughs> but and then, then you didn't remain that way for long. <laughs> exactly. The second problem was, I mean, so listen, um, this is actually not the first time Betsy Davis was not, her comments, while, I mean, ahistorical to the point of really being ludicrous. Let me just be clear. Um uh, while it was certainly that, it was not unique. So I think that what she was saying was an extension and probably why she would say it. So Betsy Davis has been understood, and I think even she would say this is accurate, a strong proponent of charter schools and other sort of market-based um, uh, K-12 school providers, right? Um, 
that argument in many places, especially in a place like Atlanta, by the way, where I saw this play out on the ground when I was living in Atlanta doing this research, um, you know, it was ground zero sort of the Atlanta school testing scandal and the uh, explosion of, of charters and alternative schools in the um, city. All of that was happening at the same time. And I remember one of the narratives coming out of that being that these schools offered poor black parents choice, quote unquote, school choice. That was equivalent to the school choice that middle class white parents had been able to make mostly by using their dollars uh, to choose where they could afford to buy a home. Right. But that it was giving poor black parents that same sort of option. What I think Betsy Davis was doing, but absent, I think, any understanding of what historically black colleges are. I mean, let me just be clear. I really don't think she has any clue what they are. At all. I don't think she knows anything about their institutional history or, or how they came to be. What she did know was that similar to the dynamics of K through 12, that many African Americans went to these colleges. And so I think she was just expanding her framework of saying, oh, just like charters offer poor black parents a choice in K through 12, black colleges are offering black families a choice uh, in higher education. This idea of school choice being a democratic process, of course, ignores all of the social inequality that shapes who has what choices. Um, It totally neglects the idea of whether or not all of those choices um, are are equitable relative to each other. Um, But what it does do is it helps them, uh, it helps this administration and those proponents who believe in that reshape the idea of privatization as liberty. As a civil liberty, and that's actually a real, um, a really important step in sort of financializing and privatizing all manner of public goods. You've got to make the privatization seem like uh, a civil liberty, and and I think if we allow that rhetoric that Devos was espousing there to sort of take root, I said to someone recently, um, you know, shame on us. And I think we probably lose that battle if we allow that line to stand uncontested. I think it's so interesting hearing you answer a question that I hadn't asked yet. And the question that I was going to ask was about mm-hmm. uh, what what the future of for-profit K-12 education is, given its funny mm-hmm. history. And so I was thinking about Chris mm-hmm. Whittle. Uh, who started Edison Schools, a Mm for-profit chain of public school providers uh, that was fiercely fought uh, in places Mm -hmm. like Philadelphia and Baltimore Mm -hmm. uh, and which was was, uh, driven out because uh, parents and community members were saying, this is not equivalent to the public education Mm -hmm. my child would have gotten otherwise because... This group, Edison, is trying to trim somewhere where there's no fat mm-hmm. and then return right. those trimmings to shareholders. This is, this is mm-hmm. not equitable. Uh, and mm-hmm. so what Whittle did next was he started a chain of for-profit private schools uh, called Avenues, which is a very mm-hmm. expensive school attended by uh, mm-hmm. Tom Cruise's daughter. Uh, yep. I guess she also belongs to her mother as well. Such an important detail. Yeah, she has a mother, I think, as it well. Is. Yeah, Katie, Katie Holmes. Uh, and, um, and you know, I was thinking that there's something kind of funny there about how uh, privatization failed in K-12 public schools, uh, but then mm-hmm. succeeded in on the very high end. And 
then I was going to ask you, like, what's going on there? And it seems like one of the things I'm hearing from you is that they were unable to reshape the paradigm around mm-hmm. how we conceive of valid and equitable mm-hmm. choices with regard to K-12 public mm-hmm. education. And, and so some of the privatizers moved on, but that there is a conscious effort right now to, to challenge the paradigm, mm-hmm. to challenge the notion of what is equitable and what choice is mm-hmm. and what constitutes yeah. equality. That means that we'll be fighting it out, not just in higher ed, but we'll be duking it out in K-12 public schools again in terms mm-hmm. of privatizing oh, uh, providership. Yeah, no, I think absolutely. So I, so this inter- this idea of um, what, you know, so if we think of education as a, um, you know, it's having two poles, you know, high prestige and low prestige. Um, I think it's really interesting how often actually privatization has failed at the uh, low prestige end um, because they always think that's the low-hanging fruit. Um, I think some of that is, can be attributed to the, you know, the social class background of the people who are usually um, creating these entities. But at the K through 12 level, they've actually struggled, um, with getting a significant foothold at the low prestige. And I'm familiar actually with the avenues. I'm familiar with the one in New York. I'm, um, part of the gentrifying part of Brooklyn, if I'm not mistaken. Um, at the top end though, they have much more success in K through 12. And I attribute that to the fact that what wealthy parents really want is a level of personalization for their children. Um, and the trade-off for having sort of control over that personalization uh, is that there is, um, you know, sort of less buy-in to the idea of public education. But if those were the parents who were always going to send their kids to private school, then, you know, you, you just have less resistance. Higher education, however, is the flip, which is that um, for-profit, for-profit entities have had much better success with the lower end, uh, the low prestige part of higher education, and far less success creating a high prestige for-profit. And I attribute that to the fact that by higher education, we no longer think of ourselves as dealing with vulnerable populations like we do in K-12, right? They're children. By higher education, we still tend to think of those populations as being young adults, and I think um, for that reason, we're much less sympathetic to the choices that they have to make that we have allowed the low prestige part of higher education um, to sort of be open season for profiteering. Um, One of the things that I hope I'm able to push back on in this book is to say that's only because we think that choosing, quote unquote, choosing to go to higher education these days is an actual choice. When what I'm arguing is that the labor market has, you know, some structural changes in the labor market have made it such that if you want dignified work, it has become increasingly difficult to get it without any post-secondary education. That is really changing that notion that college students are choosing college and therefore should not be thought of as sort of, you know, sympathetic figures um, in what's happening with profiteering. Um, and, and I hope that we can sort of change that notion. Trustee, I want to thank you for uh, letting us interview you about your new book, Lower Ed. It inspired me to really think in new ways about the relationship between risk and education. Mm -hmm. And it inspired Jack to draw a very complicated chart that he's been over here scribbling. We'll throw it up on the website. (laughs) 
<laughs> Thanks, Please Tracy. Share the chart, Jack. I must see the chart. <laughs> <laughs> the book is called Lower Ed, The Troubling Rise of For-Profit Colleges in the New Economy. And you can also follow Tressie's very lively uh, Twitter feed at, <laughs> at Tressie McPhD. Thanks, Tressie. Thanks so much for having me. Have a good day. <laughs>